The future of payment security hinges on a number of factors, such as enhanced card technology like the chip, emerging security technologies such as tokenization and encryption, and near real-time payment settlements, which is being pushed by the Federal Reserve and NACHA, the Electronic Payments Association. At Information Security Media Group's Fraud Summit in New York, Liz Garner, Vice President of the Merchant Advisory Group, will discuss some of the challenges and opportunities these new technologies are posing and creating for merchants, and how working with vendors to integrate solutions that can help merchants detect fraudulent transaction patterns sooner can reap big savings long-term. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So Liz, I mentioned that you'll be speaking at ISMG's Fraud Summit in New York, which is being held October 20th. What are some of the key points you plan to make about global fraud trends? And if we take a look at some recent fraud numbers, according to the July 2015 edition of the Nielsen Report, the U.S. accounted for 48.2% of gross card fraud losses worldwide, while generating only 21.4% of the total global purchase volume and cash volume. U.S. fraud reached 12.75 cents per $100, while fraud losses in other regions combined was only 3.73 cents. What do these percentages and figures tell us, Liz? Well, thanks, Tracy. I'm looking forward to speaking at the Fraud Summit in New York. One of the best parts about the events that you all hosted today is that it really is a great forum for people from the merchant community like myself to be in the same room and talking with issuers directly about these issuers, which is of the utmost importance. Most of the fraud losses born in the United States are borne by two parties, and that is the merchant community and the issuing community. And we're also the two major touch points with the consumer when it comes to card payments and any other type of electronic payment, be it the financial institution they have their account with or the merchant whose store or location they're trying to use their account in. I think the numbers from the Nielsen Report are extremely telling. For the U.S. to reach 12.75 cents per $100 in fraud losses, compared to 3.73 cents globally means we have a real problem here and a problem we need to make significant strides to help fix um, and make a better, more secure landscape to improve consumer confidence, not just for U.S. cardholders, but for international cardholders traveling from abroad to the United States who want to use their payment cards here. We need to make it a more secure system for everyone. So talking about fraud, one of the things that we've talked about a lot in the industry of late is as the U.S. makes this migration, Liz, to EMV, what can the expectation be for merchants that decide not to invest in EMV or have not invested in EMV yet from a chargeback perspective? What can you say about chargebacks for fraud in the wake of the EMV liability shift? How much more can merchants expect to pay? So I think there's a lot that's still to be determined as far as what the impacts are going to be of the liability shift post the October 1 date. Part of the reason is merchants won't see their accounts statement until the end of the month, towards the end of October, early November. So they won't really be able to see if they haven't been able to transition yet exactly what that shift has meant for them. And I think that's going to continue to play out, especially over the next three to six to nine months, as more and more merchants transition over to be EMV capable, fully EMV capable, and as issuers continue to get cards at market. There's definitely been a significant lag here with some timelines that were pretty unrealistic at the outset to get us to EMV. And so I think there is going to be sort of a catch-up phase right now that we're going to go through. And there's a lot of uncertainty right now as to what that chargeback landscape is going to look like and what the fraud liability is going to look like in a couple of months between different parties. And I think a lot of that uncertainty is frightening, particularly for smaller businesses, but really for any business who's been trying to get EMB ready 
and hasn't had the tools necessary from a market participant to get there yet. So Liz, what would you say is unique to the merchant community when we think about fraud prevention? Well, I think we approach fraud as sort of a three-legged stool, fraud prevention. We're looking at all different types of technologies, and I think taking even a step back from there, it's really important to recognize that it is the breached entity's name who is remembered. Nobody remembers however many Visa cards were compromised at a merchant breach. It's that merchant's name that gets dragged through the mud if there is a breach incident even suspected at one of their locations. So it's in every merchant's best interest to take very extreme fraud prevention measures to protect their brand and to protect their customer and their customer's data. So merchants take fraud extremely seriously. They take data protection extremely seriously. And we just need better and more tools in the toolbox to help us prevent against that fraud. So when we look at some of the fraud prevention tools that are out there, as I mentioned, it's really a three-legged stool of this migration to EMV, which really only protects it against card-present counterfeit fraud. It doesn't touch lost and stolen with many of the roadmaps we've seen in the U.S., and it could have very negative effects for card-not-present fraud, so internet transactions and mobile commerce transactions. So there are other technologies like tokenization and encryption that merchants are in the midst of deploying. I can tell you there are some distinctions here between what type of tokenization we're talking about. We can talk in greater depth about that, but I can tell you over 50% of the MAG merchants, just from an informal survey, are deploying or looking to deploy some type of tokenization solution. And those who haven't, over 50% of them, are looking to deploy those solutions, tokenization-like solutions, in the very, very near future. So these are technologies above and beyond EMV that can help protect customers' data and create a more secure commerce environment in the U.S. So let's expand on that a bit, Liz, and talk about the different types of tokenization. What do you mean when you say different types? Sure. So one of the types that you've heard about most in the news recently is sort of the Visa MasterCard version of tokenization, which is kind of a payment or transactable token that's very specific to payment card information. It's not even as broad as looking at some types of gift cards or certain types of ACH transactions. It's very limited in scope and to the types of payments that it does cover. It's really branded products that our Visa MasterCard and some of the other major global card networks. When we look at other types of tokenization, things that are even more popular within the merchant community is tokenizing data in our own systems. We have several e-commerce merchants who've deployed their own proprietary solutions to tokenize data within their system. Certain merchants have had that rolled out for several years. Others are in the process of converting that right now, but it makes it a lot easier for them to control their own environment when they have insight into the different processes inside their own operations. So they can bring in their own gift cards, their own rewards programs, their own private label products into their own tokenization schemes, whereas the third-party tokenization that's built out by the brands isn't really built for that. And the other type of tokenization we see is a third-party acquirer tokenization solution that you can buy off the shelf. And that's attractive as well because you have more product and services that you can bake into that tokenization solution. It's important to take a step back and note that tokenization is a security technology meant for masking sensitive data. So essentially creating a token or randomized value to take sensitive information out of scope for data that's being stored. And that's not anywhere near limited to just credit card data. Merchants want to use that for all sorts of different PII 
lifestyle data, including maybe a prescription number or driver's license or anything else that they might see at their point of sale that would help them legitimize a sale for that prescription or whatever item they're required to age verify. So let's go back to the EMV discussion, Liz, and I know that tokenization and encryption are technologies that a lot of merchants have been talking about as they make their investments in EMV. EMV can reduce fraud losses that are related to card present transactions, but without the pen, the Merchant Advisory Group and other retail groups say that the U.S. won't see the fraud reductions that other markets have seen. Why? So the main thing the PIN does is it authenticates the cardholder. The PIN is a unique code that only the cardholder will know, not something like a CVV code that can be found on the outside of the card if it were lost, stolen, accidentally, you know, dropped going through the metro turnstile in the morning. So the PIN does provide an added layer of security. Anytime you have a PIN authenticated transaction, it's called multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication. And it does help prevent against that lost and stolen fraud that's out there in the marketplace. There are also commercially viable solutions in the U.S. to accept PIN data online for internet e-commerce transactions. That's something that is happening right now in places like India, and there's no reason we can't do that here in the United States with the solutions that are at market. But we can't authenticate at the merchant level a PIN if there's not a PIN associated with a financial product. So the MAG has encouraged issuers and the networks in the U.S. to build out their EMV roadmaps to include the issuance of a PIN on these cards. And I think the data sets are out there as well that show that PIN does reduce fraud. We talked about the Nielsen report numbers from this July, and for worldwide on PIN-initiated transactions, fraud is 1.3 cents per $100. That's compared to, you know, a U.S. fraud rate of 12.75 cents. We need to be more aggressive when it comes to enabling PINs on products in the States in order to start to get our numbers down. Not to say that PIN is the only form of two-factor authentication that we can utilize in the future. I mean, I think there are other growing solutions out there, but I think it's the best one that's at market today. Otherwise, why are we still entering PINs at our ATM machine? So beyond the chip and PIN debate, Liz, many merchants are being denied debit routing options as they're being mandated by their processes and or acquirers, as I understand it, to implement global EMV processing rather than having the option to implement a fully interoperable EMV solution. Can you explain what the differences are here and why are merchants' options being limited? So I think this comes back to the root of what EMV is. So EMV stands for EuroPay MasterCard and Visa. And it was a solution that was crafted in Europe in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, and associated with the EMV chip card technology. So the major brands control the technical specifications for these new computer chips that are going on cards. And the challenge that we get there is in the United States on sort of magnetic stripe cards, which we've had in circulation for several years now, it's a simple process whereby a PIN debit or domestic debit card network could be a viable routing option on those card transactions. When you get into an EMV world, Visa, MasterCard, we're essentially in a position to license out the technology to enable these domestic U.S. PIN debit networks to get their routes or their networks on the EMV computer chips. And by having to license out the separate application, that's really put those U.S. domestic debit card networks at a disadvantage. And one, just getting their network on the card, and two, potentially in the future, being able to compete for transaction volume. The reason that's problematic is, one, you know, we like competition in the U.S. The more networks that are available, the more secure the transaction is going to be because you're creating a more efficient process. 
and you're going to have lower costs, which is going to lower costs for everyone in the system. Secondly, the law in the U.S. requires there to be at least some competition and routing on every debit card transaction, enabled on every debit card. And so by creating a means where the technology has been licensed separately to U.S. domestic debit cards, Visa and MasterCard have kind of put themselves at an advantage for transaction routing in an EMV environment. And thirdly, the technology to enable U.S. domestic debit networks onto EMV applications, EMV computer chips, really wasn't licensed early enough to meet these liability shift deadlines of October 1st. So people may look back and say, well, the licensing agreements went into effect in sort of early 2014, but what a lot of folks aren't realizing is that that created a huge bottleneck and already very tight timeline. After that technology was licensed, you still had to have the Pendebit networks come in and essentially come up with their own technical specifications, so code to that technology. Then you would have to have the acquiring community come in and certify with those Pendebit networks to then translate that technology over to the merchant point of sale the point where merchants weren't getting the specifications to program for these debit networks until mid-summer. A lot of times merchants want to have full technical specifications for a project of the size and magnitude and complexity of EMV 12 to 18 months prior to initiating the project. So because of these delays in getting the debit specifications to marketplace, there are some merchants who've installed EMV acceptance without full routing capability. It was kind of a catch-22 choice for a lot of merchants. Do I go EMV October 1st and do a partial implementation, or do I wait and try to maintain my routing rights and go fully EMV later on in 2015 or potentially in early 2016? So you do think that we will see a change, that at some point merchants will be able to expand their options. This was really just a decision made to get them EMV compliant sooner rather than later. I think eventually we will see more routing choice in the EMV contact world. I think the big question mark is going to be what happens in EMV contactless. I have more significant concerns that allowing one or two companies to license technology versus creating that technology and those technical specifications in an open standards environment could lead to more activity that prohibits or inhibits in some way the ability of merchants to exercise the routing rights that are required by the law in the United States to have. So Liz, I'm going to shift gears here on you a bit, and you know maybe this all kind of connects more readily than I'm thinking it does in my mind, but real-time payments, and there could be a connection here between EMV and real-time payments, but I know that this push from the Fed and NACHA is something that's going to be a focal point during your session. What can you tell us about real-time payments? So I think there's a huge interest from the merchant community in moving to faster and more secure payment. I think we're actually even disappointed, and we've said this in our comments regarding the NACHA proposal, that we're just talking about same-day ACH payments in the U.S. versus near real-time, which has already been rolled out in countries like the U.K. We think we should be taking a bigger step forward as we look to improve the speed of payments in the U.S. And we have several of our members who are participating in the Fed's Faster Payments Working Group. We're participating directly as well, and we view those as very important initiatives and look forward to seeing some real progress. And hopefully we can maybe eventually leapfrog the same day conversation and get into a near real-time conversation, which is where we really want to be. I do think that, you know, just one more point on that is a lot of the conversation around 
real-time payments is based on an ACH model. And that's definitely an attractive alternative for the merchant community to some of the legacy-based card systems where we haven't seen as much innovation as we would have hoped and as much cost and security efficiencies as we would have hoped over the past several years. So we are very much looking forward to improvements in the ACH system. It's just important that we see those made in a way that it fosters a secure payment and creates cost efficiencies, which is certainly one of our concerns that we've voiced with the NACHA proposal and the level of interbank fee being set and fixed. I think to some degree that's artificial setting of a price and aren't 100% supportive of moving forward with a fixed interbank fee but understand the need to balance the interests of moving the project forward and look forward to seeing what continues to evolve in the space, particularly in the longer term as it relates to consumer to business payment. And so you touched on this a bit, Liz, but I'm going to have you expand here if you can. I understand that there are some differences between the faster payments that NACHA is proposing and then the ultimate, you know, move toward near real-time payments that I know the Fed has been hoping we can implement at some point here in the U.S. But what are some of the security concerns specifically for merchants when it comes to real-time payments? So I think as far as the initial payment, one of the big concerns that we've been having really has to do with gift card purchases, so the ability to potentially buy a gift card fraudulently and turn around and then reuse that before the fraud is detected. So I think that's one of the key things that we'll be watching is how that sort of transaction scenario could play out as we move towards faster payments. I think one of the key areas where we want to see faster payments isn't always on the front authorization side, but on the back end when we're looking for faster release of holds that are placed on a consumer's account or faster returns or reversals of a canceled sale or returned item. For us, there's a huge benefit in improving real-time payments in that sense where we're talking about returning funds to the customer for either a returned item or, again, that release of sort of a pre-authorization that you might have when you book a hotel room or you go in and start pumping gas and you see that they've pre-authorized a certain amount for the sale just to know that it's a good card before you actually start pumping the gas before you turn the gas pump on. There are very specific rules that the card brands have as far as making that happen more quickly, the release of holds and returns and reversals that we feel like aren't really being met in the current environment. So we get a lot of customer confusion calls when they see that, you know, a payment hasn't cleared, a reversal in particular, store credit hasn't cleared, even though we've done everything we can to push it through our system. Or that, you know, there's still a hold on some of their account funds from pre-authorizing their cards for that gas pump example. So we've even filed comments with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau saying this is really something we need to strive to improve because for us, retail is all about the customer experience. You want to keep the customer coming back, you want to keep them happy, and you want them to have a frictionless experience. And not having near real time in these instances is a bottleneck. It is creating a negative customer experience. And we get a lot of calls about these types of fund availability issues that I've been talking about, which is particularly frustrating because from a security standpoint, there's a lot we know about the customer at the point that they're initiating a return, as an example. They are to us a known entity. That card's been authorized for payment before, and we're just trying to put funds back on it. Well, Liz, as always, it's great to get the merchant perspective, and I look forward to seeing you at the summit in New York next week. Great. We look forward to participating. Thanks, Tracy. Again, we've just heard from Liz Garner of the Merchant Advisory Group. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.